Hey everyone, it's Lucas and Anita. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Okay, so some interesting stuff happening with the crypto markets. For once, not all doom and gloom, some good stuff happening. Yeah, so actually Ethereum is up about 45% week over week. And, you know, this is a pretty significant recovery for ETH because we saw a pretty rough, you know, a couple of weeks before this, but this past week seems to have made up a lot of the losses that Ethereum had suffered in the past month. So, you know, from where it was around 30 days ago, it's sort of trading at a similar price level. And it looks like that means that the crypto markets overall are just doing better. But, you know, Ethereum in particular as well, people are optimistic about it right now. Yeah, it seemed like it went from like $2,000 to $1,000 like overnight. And now it's slowly inching its way up. It's right around like $1,500, $1,600 right now. But people are excited because it looks like the merge, which is the big thing in Ethereum land, might actually happen. Yeah, so the merge is really interesting. You know, the, the founders have sort of been saying this is going to happen for a really long time. This has been planned for a really long time. And it was an early proposal made. And what the merge is, is basically they're going to transition from their proof of work validation system to a proof of state validation system, along with, you know, a number of other changes and how Ethereum functions at its core level. I think, you know, people are optimistic about that sort of mitigating a lot of the environmental impacts of Ethereum specifically. But what's more interesting is the timing, because since this has been promised, I think so many times, and they really want to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row and do things right before the merge actually happens and they, you know, send it with that. But it was supposed to happen this summer at some point, and it seems like it's sort of looming and, you know, this transition has already started to at least be reflected in Ethereum prices. Yeah. And I mean, like, there are obviously a lot of proof of stake blockchains out there, but it's a lot easier to start with it than it is to transition because Ethereum's a multi, multi hundred billion dollar network at this point. And it's just transitioning the validation thing is just a huge process. So it's taken time and people have kind of been like skeptical whether it's going to happen at all. Some people are saying that the timing is just right right now. Yeah, people are actually super excited about this. And I was reading some commentary that was talking about despite all this sell pressure and people are kind of worried about the downturn. I'll read you this tweet. The tweet is, there's going to be virtually no sell pressure when the merge happens. Everyone who's staking is locked up. Everyone remaining with their money in staked ETH is holding until it repegs. Anyone who had their money on Voyager or Celsius is locked in bankruptcy proceedings for five to 10 years. Crypto commenter Ethereum Jesus tweeted that. I have no idea who that is. (laughs) Uh, But hey, you know, what would Ethereum Jesus do, I guess? Well, I think the guy who went by Bitcoin Jesus is now uh, (laughs) like led to one of these platforms going under. (laughs) Oh, shoot. So I don't know if Ethereum Jesus necessarily holds the same weight. Yeah, not saying you should trust Ethereum Jesus as a source, just uh, giving you that that little two cents. Again, we have no idea who this is. Exactly. But speaking of Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin's also up about 21% this week and crypto did regain its $1 trillion market cap. I think it was a couple days ago. So, you know, things seem like they're going well, but there's also, you know, a lot of negative news still going on. And, you know, that's the first thing that I want to talk about in the news today. Well, yeah. So, I mean, even when prices are going up, it's kind of weird because it's not like, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin prices took a dive because of macroeconomic conditions. People are worried about going to recession. So obviously they don't want to be in risky assets like cryptocurrencies is how the thinking goes. For startups that actually have to plan whether their companies can survive as they're seeing other crypto startups fall all around them, they're having to plan a little bit longer into the future. So this week, OpenSea announced that they were laying off 20% of their employees, which I think, you know, is a few dozen. They don't actually have that many employees. So after the 20% layoffs, they have 230 employees, which you might think, okay, (laughs) they're, they're a company that facilitates NFT trading. How many people do they need? 
But they're also a startup worth $13.3 billion. And in, in tech land, having a valuation that high and having a couple hundred employees isn't that bad. So it's not like they were like... When is that valuation from? That valuation's from January. So they raised it a pretty primo time. I mean, November was the height for cryptocurrency prices, but January, things were still looking pretty solid. So they raised it a good time. They got a wild multiple, I'm sure. But now they're just kind of in a situation where they're having to look into a very potentially dark future and wonder whether they've got the money to make things happen. Their CEO, Devin Finzer, I feel like a lot of the people we talk to on a regular basis are, they say downturn, they say potential bear market, they say maybe there's a crypto winter in the future. But that's all <laughs> while all these things are going down like 60 and 70%. But right. Devin Finzer was like, you know, this is... They, they say cycle, actually. Exa- I think yeah, the, that's exactly. the word used they're, to mask it. They're just like, they're like, who knows if it's going to go all the way back up in a month. <laughs> and they'd be like, well... Cycle implies it will. Oh, yeah, no one necessarily thinks that's going to happen. So Devin Finzer said, we have entered an unprecedented combination of crypto winter and broad macroeconomics instability. So he's a little bit more... Realistic, uh, yeah. A little bit more emphatic that bad times are potentially ahead and we need to streamline the company in some capacity. And it's not like there are a lot less users on OpenSea right now. I think there's like people are talking about like the NFT crash or something like that. The volumes and like the number of transactions is like fairly consistent. It hasn't taken a big dive, but they're transacting with currencies that are worth a lot less money. So they're making a lot less money. So that, like that's the main thing. It's just like they're the currency that OpenSea primarily has is Ethereum. And it's worth 50% less. So they're making 50% less money. One thing I want to ask you, Lucas, is yeah. well, what are your thoughts on, is this different from what we've been seeing at Coinbase or at Gemini, You know, some of the bigger crypto exchanges laying people off? Yeah, uh, NFTs are a different beast sometimes. But I think for the most part, Coinbase had a lot of employees. They had more than a thousand. That's kind of there. <laughs> it's funny enough. I mean, it, we'll see if this tracks, if OpenSea was to raise another round. But their current public market cap on the public markets is around $16 billion. And so OpenSea at $13 billion, it's not necessarily, they're different problems, so they need different yeah. amounts of employees. They probably have like 4x the amount of employees that OpenSea has. So it's just like they got a ton of employees because they have some big competitors. They got Binance, they got Gemini, they got FTX, all kind of knocking on their door. OpenSea's kind of sitting pretty. Coinbase was trying to eat their lunch and like release a competing marketplace, but like didn't do a good job. Which GameStop outperformed, like (laughs) we talked about last week on the show. And yeah, now GameStop is doing it. So it's like they have to worry about themselves continuing to do well. And they said with this that after they lay off these people, if volumes stay the same, they're going to have five years of runway. I don't know anyone who thinks that volumes are necessarily going to stay the same. I mean, NFT sales, I feel like we're like a fever pitch of this bull run of like 0% interest rates. Like I feel like everything led to board apes existing. Yeah, And so I don't know. NFT volume staying the same for five years seems highly unrealistic in my mind. I think OpenSea... So you think they're going to go down? Not necessarily. I would be concerned if I were them. If all of a sudden what you thought was five years of runway is actually two years of runway, I don't know. How long will a crypto winter last? Like most of them last two or three years. And they have enough investors who they're not going to have to worry about like getting someone to sign a term sheet. If they go down, the whole NFT ecosystem is going down. So I don't think they're like in a very risky spot. I'm sure they're wondering like, "Ah, could we have gotten another hundred million out of our investors and like taken a little bit of a valuation haircut? Like, do we need all this? It's a thought. Right. They're one of the big players, but there are other big players in the US markets. Like we were talking about, Coinbase has a lot of competition. You wrote a little bit about that this week. 
Yeah, so Coinbase is not just facing competition for their NFT marketplace. That's a relatively new offering Mm -hmm. that they launched, but their core business is seeing a lot of challenges. And I think that's because of a lot of these global exchanges really fighting over the U.S. market. The U.S. market is super important right now. I think it's been a tough nut to crack because of regulatory issues for a lot of different exchanges. And Coinbase, for a while, has just been synonymous with sort of being the market leader in the U.S. You know, you talk to almost anyone who's first getting into crypto who's U.S.-based, and Coinbase is like their go-to exchange. Mm -hmm. But right now, things seem to be shifting with Coinbase's very public struggles. They are public companies. They have to struggle more publicly, too. I'll give them that. (laughs) Yeah. But FTX is one of the exchanges that people have been talking about as a big competitor to Coinbase. And today, just heard some news this morning from Bloomberg that FTX and FTX US are reportedly both in talks to raise a new funding round and Mm. that they're targeting a flat valuation, which it might sound bad, but it's actually kind of a good thing, right? Right. Flat valuations. If you're raising a flat valuation a couple of years ago, people would be like, ah, man, your company's doing very poorly. But raising a flat valuation when the markets are crashing all around you is essentially like a big vote of confidence. And let's be clear, this is what they're targeting. Other companies have been targeting flat valuations and haven't been getting You them. can target anything, right? Exactly. Like maybe they think it's fairly realistic. And FTX seems like they've been having good press around them in terms of like buying the <laughs> the flaming dead carcasses of all these lending companies. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> right, with their CEO bailing all, everyone out. Right. But they, they seem like they're in like a, a fairly cozy position compared to Coinbase, at least. Yeah, they are. And they're taking an interesting strategy, which is that they're really focusing on diversifying their business. They have made this big push into U.S. equities. So they're going to be a stock trading platform as well. They're taking the approach of like, we want to be a one-stop shop for our customers. Whereas historically, FTX was really focused on really sophisticated traders, like people who yeah. are trading in derivatives. They were sort of the first exchange. The Yeah, exactly. The traders, they were the first exchange or the first major exchange to come out with a derivative platform. They've been operating it for a while. But, you know, the one thing that I think is really interesting, and this is actually what I wrote my article about, is that there's another competitor that people aren't talking about when it comes to the U.S. market. And that is Binance U.S., which is the U.S. partner, U.S. arm of Binance, the global, the largest crypto exchange in the world. And yet somehow they have not. I think the largest startup in the world, maybe. Largest crypto exchange, largest crypto exchange. Yeah. So Binance is huge. They're massive, but, you know, they really are only really now finding their footing in the U.S. market. I think right now is just such an opportune moment. It's not just Coinbase that is struggling. I mean, we also had a story on the site about Gemini doing more layoffs that Jacqueline reported and They just laid off 10% of their staff two months ago. You know, before we dive into the Binance stuff, I want to take a second to um, to read you a a little quote from the CEO, Cameron Winklevoss, one of the two Winklevi who run Gemini. He, He basically heard that this news got leaked that they're doing a second round of layoffs. And he sent his staff a Slack message saying, karma is the blockchain of the universe. Just take that in. Uh, he had a, so he he sent this long message and the Winkle Winklevi have been they've been in the blockchain space for a while they bought like a huge chunk of Bitcoin a few years ago but they're kind of enigmatic figures they just started a rock cover band and they're currently on tour as their company somewhat implodes but part of this message he sent was basically just talking about the vision of the company and he said he told the employees in the Slack message we are going to the moon we are going to need cosmic consciousness to get there earthly consciousness will not be enough. If you are exhibiting the behavior of a first-time human, time to level up. 
Wow. Imagine imagine getting that from your boss. You're just, I mean, I'm sure there are people more operationally involved if they're kind of, you know, rocking away in leather pants on tour. But <laughs> right. that, that is, you got to have some operators. It is interesting language to be getting from, from the CEO of your company. Oh, absolutely. Ahead of layoffs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all going to be in the blockchain of the universe, Lucas. So I, I, it's all going to be recorded in the ledger I don't right like there. That vision of the world <laughs> for everyone to see. Yeah, it did. no, but um, it's not just Coinbase. Clearly, Gemini is also going through a hard time, and I think that the U.S. market in general is pretty lucrative. So, circling back to what we were talking about with Binance, they have not been doing well in the U.S. market, and the main mm-hmm. reason for that is they've been in so much shit in terms of regulation all over the world for so long now that I think people have really underestimated them and sort of written them off. They've been playing fast and loose and they've reaped the rewards in that they are the biggest crypto exchange in the world. But you make some enemies and like even their CEO, CZ of the like overall Binance organization. I mean, they've made some enemies. That's just a fact. So I think that like them coming into the U.S. markets and being a Asia-based entity just it, it just raises some. Well, eyebrows. I think they technically say they don't have a headquarters, but <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. take that as you will. I think they've bounced around quite a bit trying to find a, a friendly home and have not found one. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, they are still in some of that shit for sure. Like they're under active investigation by the CFTC. I think the Justice Department and the IRS are also investigating them for like money laundering and tax evasion. Mm. Like this is not pretty stuff, but fun things. Right. But the thing is that customers seem to love them because their whole play and their whole strategy has been to undercut their competitors in terms of cost. So they've been very vocal about how they're hiring in a down market. They launched a staking product recently. They've gotten a bunch of regulatory approvals in different states. And, you know, I think it's sort of a watch this space. The U.S. is sort of up for grabs right now if Coinbase and Gemini and some of the big leaders here keep faltering. And that could be the opportunity for Binance to make huge inroads into the U.S. market. Yes, I don't know. It's just going to be a weird time because like if all these people are jockeying for power when it's also in a crypto winter and like public markets are getting hit, this could be an opportunity for a startup that isn't kind of beholden to public disclosure and stuff to just like rocket ahead and take over. Coinbase has been working on this for like a decade plus. And it's just, yeah, it's weird, weird timing. That is the crypto dream, you know, skirt regulation, (laughs) make it to the top. No, I'm I'm joking-ish. Um, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but wait, let's uh, let's talk about something else spicy in the right. NFT world, Lucas. I know, I know, you're excited to chat about this one. You know, I don't own NFTs. <laughs> I don't trade anything. But I, I'm endlessly fascinated by what's gone on over the past couple of years with NFTs. Bored Apes, you've probably heard of them. If you're listening to this podcast, I would imagine you have. They're the most valuable NFT collection. Each one, there are 10,000 of them. Each one goes currently for about 150 grand each. This company that made them is called Yuga Labs, and they raised some venture funding a few months ago from Andreessen Horowitz at a $4 billion seed valuation, which... That's absurdly high lot, for anyone. Which is yeah. a lot. And I don't think I've ever seen a seed valuation that high. Yeah, a lot of money. So essentially, they've released all these monkey JPEGs, but they're essentially pre-product other than that. It's all on the promise of what they can do in the future. So their big thing is that they want to create the metaverse. Who doesn't? Seems fun. Why not? <laughs> and they're working on this thing called Other Side, which is kind of like Roblox, but it's a hub for NFT avatars to hang out or just regular avatars. I don't think you necessarily need NFTs to get involved. So it's sort of like a video game, right? Yeah, it's like Roblox. It's theoretically like a big world where it's a platform and you can have a bunch of different online virtual experiences. You can play games, you can do all this stuff. 
So it's ambitious and open-ended, and they're trying to justify a $4 billion valuation with it. They also have a lot of people who have already paid a lot monetarily to get involved with it. This is a club penguin for the crypto bulls. <laughs> club penguin for millionaires, <laughs> yeah. I think. It seems like something that should be worth $4 billion, in my opinion. I'll, I'll fork over the money any day. <laughs> so I did this demo over the weekend, and I was one of the first people outside of the Word Apes community to get to do it. I think as yeah, as the only reporter. But they did this demo... And the big thing about it is that if you do something like Fortnite, there are 100 people in a battle royale and you can see them all and they exist in the same like multiplayer world at the same time. But it's just 100. And like if you do Call of Duty, like there might be a little bit more. But most of these are sticking to kind of the 100, 200 branch at the top of the end. So other side, it's using this tech from this company based in the UK called Improbable, which has been kind of working in relative silence. They're not too flashy for about 10 years. And their big thing is that they want thousands of people to be playing concurrently. That sounds chaotic. (laughs) Yeah, like going into a virtual city and seeing thousands of people walking around. Maybe you see that in other games, but a lot of those are kind of computer-controlled NPCs. These are all people who are behind their laptop moving around and chit-chatting. So in this demo I did, there were 4,500 people playing concurrently. Wow. And it was kind of, it was a weird experience. It was a very like tightly controlled scripted thing where they kind of like walked us through the platform and like showed us how to, you know, move and chat with each other. And like, there was like a little boss fight in it. It was like, you know, they realized this was important. It was clearly scripted and like it went well, but it was weird, like walking around and having thousands of people. Yeah. Chaos is probably the right way to describe it. Well, and it seems like having that many people on at the same time is pretty important if you're going to be building the metaverse, you know, and and you want to acquire users. Everyone has to be able to participate, right? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to think about this. Some people would be like, okay, well, I have so much fun playing 4v4 in Call of Duty or something. Why would I need like a thousand people? That just like opens up to just, you know, a thousand people sniping me at the same time and I'm alive for two seconds and then I'm I I played Call of Duty like once or twice with my (laughs) friends. I'm not a gamer just for the record, but, you know, I remember like, walking out, doing that mode where you're playing with real people. I think I died in like one second. (laughs) There there are going to be a lot of problems with this. I mean, it's just by virtue of having thousands of people concurrently. Imagine if you're just getting like cussed at by like 20 people at the same time and like you don't even know who it was. (laughs) It was scary. Yeah. So, I mean, I think they're going to have some challenges there and they're just going into kind of uncharted territory. This is a big ambitious platform and they're trying to take on Roblox. They're trying to take on, you know, what Meta's trying to build with Horizon Worlds, which is their metaverse platform platform, but they're trying to do a few things differently. So one of the big things about this game is that there are all of these parcels of land in other side and you can buy them and you buy them with called other deeds. So they had this primary sale a few months ago. They made $317 million selling 55,000 parcels of land. Wow. Dang. Yeah. The, the landlords are, are rich in the metaverse just as they are in uh, the real I know, world. I know. We're just getting screwed left and right. But I guess oh, I, it's our decision whether we choose to um, pay rental rental properties in, in, uh, in the side. metaverse. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so they made all this money. This was kind of before the crypto crash. So like these other deeds are worth less money now, which probably isn't the best feeling. But if, if you're, a lot of your wealth is in crypto, you're down across the board. So you're probably not too upset about one thing being down over another. But so they have all, they have all this land. And then in the future, people are going to be able to build experiences on it. So you'll be able to like build a house. And maybe if you go in the house, there's a game that people can play. And they don't all necessarily have to have thousands of people playing them at the same time. You can build solo experiences. You can build experiences maxed out at 10 or 100 or something like that. Developers have the option, I think is the thing that like Yuga's talking about. So... It's fascinating. I mean, building a metaverse. Sounds like it was fun. 
it was interesting. I it was it was I, I had to log on at like eight a.m. on a Saturday, which you know <laughs> I I, admit, I was actually going to make fun of you saying you you get to play video games for your job. <laughs> but hey, I was doing it. I was doing it on the weekend. This was labor of love. No, it was it was good. And talking with the team was interesting. I chatted with the founders and chatted with the CEO of Yuga, and they're very much in like. They seem to be thinking they want this to be community driven, which I know is kind of a meme amongst the NFT community. And they're obviously a $4 billion startup, so they want things to go the way they want them to go. They have a lot of community buy-in from holders of the NFTs. So if they're not happy, they want to try to make them happy. But they're trying to expand their world, so they're going to have a lot of users who aren't NFT holders and don't have multi-thousand dollar NFTs so there's there're going to be a lot of like different interests kind of going at them. So if they make something that's super fun, that's great. A lot of crypto games that have been made are not fun and they cost a lot of money to play and they're scams and that's going to be what they're going up against. This week we talked to Alex Tobb co-founder and CEO of Upstream, a startup that provides no-code tooling and resources for decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAOs. Hey, Alex, it's great to have you on the show. How are things going? Thanks for having me. Things are good. Yeah, so you are a founder. You have founded Upstream, which is a DAO tooling company. And I think there's been a lot of hype, a lot of talk, a lot of just sort of attention on DAOs. And I'm curious, Upstream didn't start as a DAO tooling company, did it? Uh, no, it did not. I also, I co-founded Upstream with my co-founder, Michael Schoenfeld. He does all sort of like the technical stuff. I do more of the business stuff. We try as a combination to do product stuff mostly failing for bringing on a, at a product right now. But uh, yeah, we did not start as a DAO company. Well, my quick background is about a decade ago, I worked at one of the earliest crypto startups, a company called Dwala. And Dwala was one of the first ways to get money in and out of basically exchanges. So you basically fund your Dwala account, you move it to BitInstant, BitStamp, Mt. Gox, sort of all those fun places. My co-founder and I, we joined together and we ended up leaving together to start a company. But we, we joined, Bitcoin was like, under $5. We had a front row seat to sort of this crazy stuff. Definitely didn't buy enough. Yeah, the, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when it hit like 40 bucks, 100 bucks, we're like, oh, this is amazing. We're rich. Like, let's sell it. <laughs> I like, I think I, I bought Nick tickets with Bitcoin in like 2010, 2011. It's really bad. Yeah. Probably the most expensive sports tickets of all time. <laughs> the reason I'm giving that backstory is because we were in the game. You know, we, we were in it early, even when we left and we started a company called Social Rank. Uh, which was a social media analytics company that we ended up selling in 2019, we were still like, we had an Ethereum rig in the office. We were playing around with ICOs and then DeFi and then NFTs. So we were always sort of like around the game. It wasn't like, oh, everyone's talking about Web3, let's go do Web3 stuff. Right. But what ended up happening is end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we started Upstream. And the idea around Upstream was what does the future of community look like? And at the time, COVID was just sort of poking its head it felt like virtual events, virtual communities. And we felt like that was the really interesting sort of use case, which is like, I'm home alone. I don't know how to meet people anymore. And I go to this event with like-minded individuals and I get to meet them and I socialize. And we had all these communities sort of pop up, Miami tech community, a business development community, a sports business community, a future of work community, you know, a serial marketers community, all these different communities that were sort of popping up and doing these virtual events during COVID. And one of the more... more and that was on Upstream, right? And yeah, and this was on Upstream. And it was, but it was always about well, what's the future of community. And then we had a really popular community. We have a really popular community called the NFT community. It meets every Friday at one o'clock. I run it with a guy named Drew Austin. And essentially what we realized was this past summer, we started to think about 
what is the future of community? What is the Web3 version of community? And realized pretty quickly that DAOs are basically Web3 communities. We start to dig in and try to figure out, okay, how do you start a DAO? How do you join a DAO? What are they used for? And we realized fairly quickly that there's two pretty big problems. The first was starting a DAO, sort of like starting a website in the 1990s. You know, either you're technical enough to do it yourself and you just sort of built that website, right? or you paid someone a bunch of money and then they built it for you. Similarly, like, unless you know Solidity and know how to spin up a smart contract, not really going to be able to start a DAO yourself. So then you need to pay someone to do it. You know, when websites in the 90s, you didn't have Shopify, you didn't have Wix or Squarespace or or even something like a WordPress. So that was the first opportunity. We're like, all right, easy way to start a DAO. That could be really useful, like a no-code solution. Then the second issue was once I start a DAO, how do I actually manage it? And the tooling out there was just really fragmented. So you'd basically do like governance with one tool and you do voting with another tool and proposals with another tool and the actual community somewhere else and token gating here. And it was just all these tools that were just really fragmented for no reason besides there's like one company working on each thing or one organization. Like Snapshot isn't really a company. It's just an organization. They're just working on that piece of the puzzle. So we felt like, okay, here's the opportunity is like build a no code sort of full stack down a box that you could spin up really easily. And we started working on it last summer. It was sort of felt like, you know, a lot of people like, oh, you pivoted into this. But the vision was always, what's the future of community? And this just felt like a really natural progression of where we were going. And then we ended up launching it mid-November. We actually launched it around the same time as the Constitution DAO. So everyone was talking about DAOs at the time. So definitely was to our favor that like- Some good timing. Nobody planned that, but it was just good timing. Yeah. It's like, you know, 20 years from now, we'll claim that like we did, we did it on purpose, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, so that's how we sort of got into the DAO space. And then I'm happy to chat more about in terms of like the different use cases, how people are using them right now and how they could sort of take off and be bigger or as big, if not bigger than NFTs. But I don't well, want to jump yeah. ahead. No, no, no. I'm curious because like the past year, there's been so much action happening in the DAO space. There's been a lot of iteration, a lot of companies or like startups that are embracing them for decisions that are kind of maybe secondary from decisions made from the executive team. But, you know, it's been a little chaotic. There have been like decisions that have been made that maybe the whole community didn't didn't agree with, but it's just been kind of a learning experience. So I guess like on your end, it's great to have a lot of customers, but have do you feel like the community has learned where DAOs make sense and where they don't necessarily? Yeah, I think a lot of people just say the word DAO and it's sort of like this like catch-all right now. So it's like sure. like a small project to a big company could be a DAO. And like, yeah, that's probably true. But I think that there's like a few use cases that make sense today. And then there's a few cases that maybe make sense in the future. The first use case that sort of seems to be working right now is investment clubs. So I want to, with 10 of my friends, we want to pull our money together and we want to buy something that maybe we can't buy individually. So whether it's a digital asset or a physical, like a collectible. So let's say there's a Kobe Bryant game-worn jersey that's going on sale. Maybe it's his final game, and it's his game-worn jersey. It's going on sale, and it's their asking price is you know, $2 million. I can't afford that by myself, but maybe me and 50 friends or 100 friends can, can afford it all together. So that's an interesting use case. That's a physical item there. But I think buying mm-hmm. digital assets with people, as long as you're under 100 people, you're considered an investment club. And the idea is that I think there's a very clear use case there that like works. 
you know? Yeah. In terms of the physical assets, I just want to jump in for a second. I, you know, for people who don't have context, you might be listening on Constitution Dow basically was exactly what you were just talking about, right, Alex? Like, you know, people coming together and they wanted to buy this copy of the U.S. Constitution that was being auctioned for sale. So, yeah. And the Constitution Dow ultimately didn't work out for a number of reasons. Obviously, they lost the auction, but also like, you know, it's very hard when it's a public blockchain to play your cards open face so everyone can see them. So there's not, I don't know, you know, the team there were great, but there was very little that they could do in such short notice to be like, actually, we need to obfuscate how much money we have because if everyone knows how much money we have, then they know how much they need to beat us. They're just going to get outbid, which is exactly what happened. And they know how much demand there is. Yeah. So investment clubs are really interesting. And I think they work both in bulls and bears. And what I mean by that is, Uh, when everyone's buying stuff and everyone's making money and everything's going up, like obviously people want to buy more. But then when things are sort of on the downswing, you maybe can't afford the thing anymore. And now you with a few friends can afford the thing. So I think it actually works both in in booms and busts. So that's investment clubs. That's one. The second use case is NFT projects that want to maybe put aside a portion of the sales and actually give it to the community to decide what to do. So let's say you have a NFT project called Crazy Koalas. I, that probably actually <laughs> exists already. But it probably does. It, I guarantee I'm, it does. I guarantee it exists. So let's say you have Crazy Koalas. Watch tomorrow, that project is going to take off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's say they sell a million dollars worth of NFTs and they say, okay, 10% of that million that came to us, we're going to put it in a DAO for the community to decide what to do with it. So maybe they want to make, you know, maybe this actually is a, like a nonprofit entity so that the community can like do things. So it's like an instant community engagement tool. So, you know, I uh, launched an NFT project with a few friends back in January with this premise. So the idea was uh, the NFT project is called Illuminati NFT. And the joke was like, if the Illuminati existed, uh, they'd probably be a DAO. And we sold an NFT with like beautiful iconography and stuff like that. And 50% of the mint was going into the DAO. And this DAO has a thousand active members, over a thousand active members. And they are, you know, they have a few million dollars to sort of play with. And like one of the things they're doing right now is they're literally building a project that they're going to like launch. There's more to it. I don't want to go too into the details because it's a little bit secret because it's the Illuminati. But (laughs) the idea is like the, the DAO can do like, really fun, amazing things. Uh, That's the second use case, which is NFT project, put aside some money, community engagement tool. A third use case that I'm playing around right now, which is actually, I need to, we need to probably talk about when you DM me. Sure. Is something we have coming soon and it involves around more like security and using your DAO as like sort of a, a way, like a lot of people click on bad links, they lose all their assets. There's hardware wallets. The core of a DAO is a multi-signature wallet. So what ends up happening is you can, in theory, put your assets in this sort of like, we're calling it like a vault DAO, where you can essentially, I don't know if you guys watch Rick and Morty, but like the Citadel of Ricks. Where I do, everyone's I like do. Rick. So like, imagine like all the signers are like you, but like different wallets, different seed phrases, but you have like, you click on a bad link, you don't lose your stuff anymore. This is a very different use case, That's more of a, a security product that we're sort of productizing right now. And I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about it. Sounds good. The fourth one that I've been spending a lot of brain power on right now, which culminates to the, the sort of overarching theme. The fourth one is the concept around participate and earn. I think a lot of, a lot of the blank to earn gets a lot of, I don't know if I'm a cursor, a lot of crap, <laughs> but like, you know. You're allowed. It's a podcast, okay. not radio. So like, so. <laughs> all right, cool. 
So like <laughs> play to earn gets a lot of shit, even move to earn. There's like step in, there's Axie Infinity. And the problem is when you're doing that thing to earn as opposed to and earning, I think there's going to be a big change in how people talk about it. They're going to say play and earn, move and earn, eat and earn, sleep and earn, pray and earn. Right, because they want to show it's an entertaining activity regardless of the, the It's part of it. it you're, meaning you're doing the thing and now you're just getting rewarded for doing the thing. Like the Peloton that's right here. Yeah. If I could earn like a, a sweat token, right? And every day that I went on my Peloton, and then I can actually use that to either pay for my subscription, or I can use it to buy like better shoes or uh, better, like, I don't know, what's the thing you use? The weights. Like there becomes an ecosystem and actually the token actually makes sense. So I think this blank and earn is going to be a lot more popular as time goes on and people figure out tokenomics that aren't like, you know, they're not. Ponzi, actual Ponzi schemes, but they call like Ponzi tokenomics. <laughs> so well, some of them Ponzi probably are yeah. Ponzi schemes. Or, I feel like that's kind of the learning in the past few months of just like some of these things that were called Ponzi schemes. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, might, they might have been, but you either have to change the definition of Ponzi scheme or. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. So you've outlined a bunch of, you know, use cases for DAOs that make a lot of sense, right, from your perspective. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious. I mean, at least from my perspective, it's like not every group necessarily has to be a DAO, right, or needs to be. I guess I'm curious no, what your takes no, no. are on like what are cases where it doesn't make sense, but people are still sort of experimenting in. Yeah. Like so at the core, DAOs blockchain, it's programmable money. That's really what it is. So you can program money to do what you want it to do. Not everything, not every community requires money. If I want to share cute photos of my dog with other people who want to share cute photos of their dog, I don't necessarily need any money there. Now, obviously, if you want to maybe add a meetup to it and you want to add some IRL stuff and events and stuff, well, then maybe you start to get into money and maybe that does make sense to to create some sort of entity where the actual community controls the governance. Like the way I sort of see it is like, I used to pay money to a community as like an admin fee and like the admin would get the money and then they decide what to do with it. If I was in like a paid community type of thing. And what changes here is like, you're still paying that money, but like it's basically collectively being decided by the group of how to use that money. So like more transparent, more sort of, you know, equitable. So I don't think everything needs to be a DAO. I'm not one of those like everything's going to be a DAO. Everything's like I think DAOs make sense for like digital communities. I think DAOs make sense for digital entities. I think a lot of people, and I've been seeing this a lot on Twitter, a lot of, you know, let's call them Web2 founders, they think they're dunking on the Web3 and stuff. But ultimately, what they are, and this is in the nicest way, they're ultimately people <laughs> that were like writing a you know, horse and buggies, and they're complaining about like <laughs> going and getting gas at the gas station for your car. That's essentially what they are. And, you know, I'm happy to debate anyone <laughs> who wants to talk about <laughs> no, this. No, we, we but, appreciate a hot take around here. So, but, but that's ultimately what they are. They're, they're, they are horse and buggy owners who are complaining about having to go to a gas station to fill up your car's gas because the horse can just keep going. You know, it needs to rest a little bit, but the horse can keep going. I don't have to fill it up with gas. <laughs> There's so many questions to ask about DAOs in terms of just like, how do they promote democratic organizations or like, do they need to be this way? And I think that like existing DAOs, they function like shareholders, people who have a lot of shares or have a lot of the governance tokens, they have an outside vote. And that's just how it works. And like, 
Otherwise, you know, someone could just set up 2000 wallets and just have one share in each. And like, that's not a great situation either. But there have been like projects like World Token or whatever that have World Coin that have like, you know, tried to have like one person, one vote and tried to like confirm that a person is a human. Do you like think any of these have legs or do you think that like the idea that just someone voting with the amount of tokens they own is probably just how things are going to shake out. I think a lot of people look at the word DAO and they think that the D stands for democracy. And that's just not <laughs> true. <laughs> sure. Yeah. People aren't sitting in a circle singing Kumbaya and being like, oh, we're all going to do this together. That can happen. And that does happen. There are communities where it's like, hey, everyone's going to get an equal say. And that's yeah. how it's going to be done. But that's just like, it's like saying like there's only one way to start a company or one way to launch a project or product. There's different things, like even companies, there's different, even public companies, there's different types. You know, there's the structure that Facebook has with Mark Zuckerberg's and his super rights or whatever. So like, there's Mm -hmm. different structures. If you want it to be a democracy, great. If you want it to be a dictatorship, you know, people shouldn't join your DAO if they are not okay with your dictatorshipness. So like, I think that it's one of those things where it's like, what will be the most popular versus like what you can actually do is the sort of the spectrum. And to be completely honest, I, the last sort of overarching thing of all those use cases, which sort of ties back to this is like, how do DAOs actually take off, right? Mm-hmm. Why are people joining DAOs? I did a chat with Julia Lipton recently. She started DAO Masters and she's really smart. And she basically broke it down to its basic core. And she's like, everything that's ever taken off in life basically ties back to, did this make people money? And if you think about it, whether it's a Web 2 or Web 3 thing, Airbnb, why did Airbnb take off? People made a lot of extra income. Uber, drivers, they made money. You know, why did any crypto thing ever take off? People made money. NFTs, people made money. So if DAOs want to take off in the same way that that happens, people need to find a way to make money by being in DAOs. And whether that means that they're investing with some people and they're making money, but that's like a lot of work to make money or like just mm-hmm. participating in a community and earning. So like this concept of participate and earn. But I think ultimately it comes down to can this thing, there's a, there's a more inappropriate version of the like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know, can this be edited? We'll, we'll this, save that for the, this, the after dark chain uh, reaction. This, this will be the after. No, but there's like, <laughs> you know, companies either get you paid or get you something else. And that's like yeah, the yeah, successful yeah. version of any company. It's right. like, that's like the core of like any successful company is that they help you make money or the other thing. So, I mean, I guess like in the like democracy versus decentralized, I think one of the problems that people have identified is just that like when you're operating a 24 seven democracy and someone can put something up to vote at all hours of the night, maybe someone has 1% or 2% of the governance tokens and they can rush something through. That's different than if you're at a shareholders meeting, you know, it's happening three months in advance. So I guess that's like one of the elements of the structured versus unstructured. So I guess in your point of view, do you foresee DAOs kind of embracing more structure rather than going the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, DAOs do not, you know, spontaneously appear. You know what I mean? It's not like a wild Pokemon that just comes out of nowhere. Like it is. <laughs> well, it's kind of felt like that almost. You know, in the like past few months. someone has to set it up. Someone has <laughs> right, to decide yeah, yeah. what they want it to do, and then at a certain point, that's when people come in and and they say, "Okay, what's this DAO about? What are we doing, etc." Like it just doesn't uh, like this idea that they like run themselves. And there's like no no core contributors and they come out of nowhere. I don't know who like uh, sure. why that's the prevailing sort of thought. The truth of the matter is, is that like they could be anything in terms of like ramming something through. So for the Illuminati DAO, NFT DAO, we basically made it so that like there's a whole proposal process 
that you need to like, this is the structure of you of a proposal if you want to put it up to the team. Yeah. It adds a layer. It's a combination of adding a layer of security, meaning we have a mandate for the DAO. If something puts up a proposal that violates that mandate, it should not be going to vote. And then two is like, we don't want anyone to just put up a, something there. And then it's like, there's a, like just spamming the whole group all the time. Sure. And that's what we decided from the outset. And if you don't like that, you shouldn't be in our DAO. And that's totally fine. You know, but and like you can buy a DAO token on OpenSea and join literally today if you want to. Not every DAO is going to be for everybody. And that's my, yeah. my, my personal take on it. It's not like this open Kumbaya story. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, speaking of, of that and, you know, the differences and some of the challenges that DAOs face, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is, you know, the crypto market right now and crypto winter, everyone's talking about it these days. But specifically, I want to talk about DAO treasuries. I know that a lot of DAOs tend to hold their treasuries and tokens. And with token prices being hit so hard, a lot of those treasuries have been absolutely battered. And I'm wondering, like, you know, how are these DAOs going to make it through? And is there any tooling functionality or anything that you have seen or are working on that can sort of help these DAOs with more like cash liquidity so they can actually operate and actually afford their basic day-to-day expenses? Pay their dollar costs. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, it's a great question. And definitely with ETH, I mean, now it's, I think, up 50% this past week. I haven't checked in the last hour or two, so I don't know. But um, <laughs> who the hell knows? Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, listen, the highs of, of Thanksgiving when people were telling their family to buy crypto to what it is right now and being disowned by your family, I think it's if, always Thanksgiving. Yeah, of course, it has to be. I mean, yeah, it's down more than 50%. Some of these things down, you know, 80, 90%. Some of these zeros, like the, the Terras and the Lunas of the world. So for some of the DAOs that I'm in, it's all in ETH and we've, we wrote it up, we wrote it down. And we're hopefully writing it back up. I think a lot of people who spend time using Ethereum cannot see a world where it doesn't exist really anymore. Like I think I spend more ETH than I do dollars these days. And like, I just don't see a world where like the merge is coming soon. Or even if it's delayed another time, like I just don't see a world where like ETH isn't the, like there will be a flip. In Maximum ETH. smart contract. Well, yeah, yeah but wait, it, there'll I, also, there'll be a flip from ETH to Bitcoin probably in the next year. I, I'm just a, curious. You said you spend more money on in ETH than in dollars? Like what kinds of things yeah. are you buying with Just with NFT, ETH? NFTs Just galore. NFTs, yeah. <laughs> Too many. Okay. Joining DAOs, NFTs. I buy things with ETH. I send, I mean, I I use it for a lot of stuff. You get those but also, tickets for yeah, well, fewer I, Bitcoin these days. Yeah, that was that was a bad bad choice. But um, no, I think for me, I also live in a world where a lot of people use ETH. So like, it's very easy for yeah. me to be like, hey, we went to a movie together. I'll just send you ETH back. Sure. Like, yeah. you know, so and that m- probably isn't everybody, but like, listen, if it depends on what you believe in the end of the day. Do you believe that, you know, right now we spend X amount of time online, right? So, and this actually goes back to like the, you know, okay, so we're in this bear right now. We're sort of like seeing, and maybe it's a dead cat bounce, or maybe we're, we're coming out of it. Who knows? But like, I think the way we actually come out of it is like a true metaverse situation where people are actually spending time. And the only way that metaverses actually work is that there's fun games and friends there. That's it. Metaverse doesn't make sense if like there's nothing fun to do there and your friends aren't there. Like nobody's going to spend any time. And we could talk about like fully immersive, like a ready player one type of thing versus just like a web browser and like, you know, a second life or an other side or something like that. I think all those things are sort of metaverse and there's different degrees of immersion into it. But I think that in a future, and I'm not saying it needs to be dystopian outside and the world needs to be like on fire, it might be, but like (sighs) you can want a Ready Player One future of a metaverse where it's super fun to be there. You're playing games, you're going on adventures, you're chatting with friends, you're fully immersed without having 
all the other things were like, the world sucks. I think like the whole concept in Ready Player One was like, the world sucked so much that people spent so much time there. But I also think that if you have your friends there and you have fun things to do there, people will spend time there. But if you can like open up your, your trench coat and have all your assets that you have accumulated over time and that, you know, like why do people buy Lamborghinis and Air Jordans? Like you can buy a Chevy a Toyota and you can wear, <laughs> you know, some basic Crocs. Why do they do anything? They do it because of status and they do it because it's community and status. Same thing with digital things. Like if you believe that we spend X amount of time right now online and we're going to spend more time online as time goes on, then digital things become as valuable, if not more valuable than or equally valuable to offline things. Now, I could touch my Lamborghini and I could I could shine my Jordans, you know, you could drive it from A to B, but I could also get a, a Lamborghini in the metaverse and drive it around drive the metaverse. It too. I'm not saying that that's necessarily like apples to apples. I'm just saying the <laughs> art, if you believe that we're becoming more and more online, then this is inevitable. This stuff is inevitable in terms of people not only spending time there, but also caring about what you have there. Yeah. So, I mean, taking a little bit back to the DAOs and I guess as we, as we wrap things up. So, I mean, there's the element of the crypto community that's like the status, but there's also kind of hidden there, like generating passive income and not being super active. Maybe they're just like setting some money into these DAOs and they're just kind of like sitting back, letting other people do the governance. But there's probably a finite amount of people who are actually interested in doing the hard work of governance. Maybe that's the founders, but maybe that's just some hardcore community members that are in a bunch of DAOs and they're really putting the time in to make these things successful. So I guess it's like as a winter comes and the idea of their money going up because of how the, the Dow is operating kind of like that dissipates a little bit. What is your outlook overall just in terms of all of the Dow's out there? Like assumedly some of these are going to fail. Do you think that a lot of them are going to fail over yeah. a, a winter? I think as time goes on, it will probably go to something like how many companies succeed versus how many companies fail. And I think also yeah. you'll probably start to see Dow's that are just like meant. I think single purpose DAOs, you would probably call like the constitution DAO and, and things like that, where yeah. it's like, there's one goal for this DAO and it's just to do this. I'm in a bunch of single purpose DAOs, but it's like me and five friends decided to buy like a Clonex, like a Mirakami Clonex. And we wanted to buy it and co-own it. It's five of us. We all put in a little bit of money and now we co-own it. Maybe we'll like do some fun stuff with it. Maybe we'll create a community around this Clonex or a story or, you know, we'll figure out what the rights we have. I think that there's, you know, these single purpose DAOs will have a life, a shelf life, and then they may have accomplished their goal or not accomplished their goal and then be done. So it's a little bit different because you sort of have to compare like the company, like successful companies, but then you also sort of have to compare just like digital native projects mm -hmm. with money, which aren't necessarily companies, right? Because if you think about like the legal stuff around this, even investment clubs, like if you stay under a hundred people, right? And then you pull money together. Let's say you everyone puts in $10,000 and you're 50 people. So now you have a nice chunk of change. Because you have 50 people, you probably want to create an entity because the entity is going to protect you from liability. So you're going to create an LLC if it's a profit generating thing. And you can have up to 99 people for investment clubs. So you're going to have 50 people and you're going to create an LLC. But you don't legally need to make an LLC. The downside is it gets looked at as like a general partnership. So essentially, sure. if Let's say we buy a board ape, right? And there's, let's make it easier. That's 10 people. We all put in 10 grand. I don't know how much a board ape goes for now. 100K, 150K. Yeah. Let's say the board ape's 100K and we put in 10 grand each. And we vote and we buy it. We decide to buy a board ape. Seven people vote yes to buy it. Two people abstain. One person votes no, right? 
for whatever reason, I don't know why they joined this group if they're not wanting to buy it, but they decided to vote <laughs> right, no. Right. Okay. Now you buy the board ape and it goes to zero. Sure. Right. You Those all three lost people your are going to sue your ass. Well, maybe, maybe not the two people that abstained, <laughs> but the one person who voted no can sue. You could sue anyone for anything in America. It's America. Yeah. That's the American dream. It's the American dream. <laughs> exactly. If you have an entity, at least you have no personal liability. Sure. And then that's the same with why you create an operating agreement between. So it's like, hey, we're all on the same page. You basically do those things for conflict. But if you go and you buy that board ape and all 10 of you are into it, and then you go and you sell that ape for a million dollars and you all walk away with 100K now, pay your taxes and everything. But there's no legal reason you need an entity. You just have, you have maybe a higher risk tolerance of what might happen during a conflict. Anyway, the, mm-hmm. the point I'm trying to make is success for these type of things will really determine at different levels, it's different flavors. And I think that it's very easy to dunk on DAOs when you're sort of like putting them all into one. It's like, oh, they're all sort of like replacement companies. Sure. It's like some of them are and some of them could be, but it's not completely true. And there's like a, a little bit more to the story here, which I think is is the point of like, you know, nuance is tough on the internet. Yeah, we're, we're trying our best here sure. with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's definitely true. Yeah. Well, hey, we could jam on DAOs for hours and hopefully we'll have you back at some point. But want to appreciate you coming on the show and chatting through some of the stuff. The winter is going to be an interesting time for DAOs. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. You can also follow us at chain underscore reaction on Twitter for the occasional Twitter space about breaking crypto news. We'll see you next week. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening.